Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc.isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Jacob. I'm the, I get to serve as the youth pastor here. Wow. That was one of my leaders. Uh, yeah, you've been, you've been brainwashed. Um, uh, I'm, I'm proud of you all for coming, even though it's a holiday. Um, you guys are the remnant. You are the real faithful. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I do need to let you know that there won't be any holiday pay for being here. Uh, you should have received an email about that, but if you didn't, I don't want you to be misinformed. There will be extra Jesus bucks awarded to you, though. So you do get brownie points of Jesus. Um, I don't see too many, like, pairs of sunglasses. I don't see uh, too many, like, bags under the eyes. So that's good. That probably means that most of you were good Baptists, didn't drink any alcohol last night, went to bed at 12.01. P, or AM, PM, AM. Well, let's pray together as, before we jump in today. Father, you've brought us another year, um, and you've brought us through the last one. We thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, we thank you for uh, all that you've done for us in the past year. I pray that you would give us eyes to see how far you've taken us that we wouldn't be, uh, that we wouldn't ignore um, and forget to celebrate the victories that you've brought us in the past year. In your name we pray, amen. amen. Today's New Year's Day, uh, which means that the world is dreaming about what 2023 could look like for them. Uh, today is the day of resolutions, which is funny because we all just got off a two-week hot streak of laziness and gluttony. Um, so it's kind of a bad time for resolution making, uh, or maybe the best of times. Uh, my sleep schedule is a complete wreck at this point, um, and I'm anticipating a heart condition after how much junk food I've been eating uh, at the end of this year. Um, I have always had a pretty unhealthy relationship with resolution making. I'm exceedingly skilled in making resolutions, and I am unimaginably poor at keeping resolutions. Um, I, in fact, I don't even have to wait until the New Year's to, uh, to make resolutions. In fact, I'd say about once every two weeks or so, I re-examine my life and realize just how undisciplined I am, and I decide this all has to change. Everything has to change. Um, I'm going to revamp my entire life, and I'm going to do that tomorrow. Um, and, and that goes just about as well as it sounds like it's going to go. 
I'll, I'll sit down and I'll write down my dream schedule filled with study and with exercise and with healthy habits, good sleep rhythms, strong spiritual routines. I'm going to pray for an hour a day. I'm going to read my Bible for an hour a day. I'm going to exercise for an hour a day. I'm going to sleep nine hours every night. I'm going to go to bed early and wake up at 5 a.m. And, I, and I, I'm going to stay off my phone and I'm, you know, I'm going to be a healthy. It's, it's finally time to take a new leaf out of life. And then I, uh, I go to sleep, and I'm all excited about this new life that I'm about to start. Uh, and then I wake up at 11 a.m. the next day, and I'm like, well, I'm already a failure. I might as well throw the whole thing in the trash. So uh, that's my confession to you. Uh, now you all see where I'm coming from, and you can probably say with me that I, that I, I have a, an unhealthy relationship with uh, resolutions. Maybe you're the type that's good at keeping resolutions. Um, maybe you're like me, and it's just often a complete disaster for you. But the reality is that we are all reacting to a strange truth about the human condition when we're making resolutions. It's almost like we have two voices in our head that are at war with each other. There's the voice of how things should be, and then there's the voice of how things are. You can call them whatever you want. You can call them the ego and the superego. You can call them delayed gratification and instant gratification. You could call it the child or the adult voice or whatever else. Call it what you want. But part of our life is lived out of one of those voices, and the other part of our life is lived out of the other voice. And a resolution is an attempt to prize the should voice over the is voice. Well, I was in the shower about a week ago, and I realized how often I bring up being in the shower while I'm up here. And it, it, it's not lost on me. It's another thing I'd like to, to uh, reform in the new year is how many showers I take and how long I take in the shower. But I was having my customary thinking time in the shower, uh, and it, a feeling of disgust just struck me by how easy it is to fall victim to the is voice, that, that voice of complacency, and to let the voice of should, or the vo voice of how we, sh we want to be, kind of slip away. Um, and it called to memory a passage from the book of Romans. So after my shower, I started to dig into Romans again. And boy, did I fall down a rabbit hole, as often happens when I go into the book of Romans. And just as a heads up, um, you're all about to fall down the rabbit hole with me, so just buckle up. It's, it's going to get strange. Uh, this is what happens when Pastor Paul lets me preach on whatever I want. Um, so he'll learn. He'll learn. Uh, the passage that came to mind will be familiar to a lot of you. It's, it comes from Romans chapter 7. And it goes like this. This is Romans 7, 18, and 19. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I want to do what's wrong, or um, I don't want it, sorry. I don't want to do what's wrong. <laughs> I, I do want to do what's wrong. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyways. Now, raise your hand if you feel that sometimes, you, that resonates with you. If you're not raising your hand, then you are not paying attention. Um, <laughs> Maybe for you, you, you struggle with anger. You feel your temper rising up when you're in certain social situations, and you just feel this, like, this red hot, and you feel almost powerless to stop it. Or maybe you struggle with anxiety, um, and you see how it just keeps you from being who you want to be, keeps you from following uh, in the ways that God wants you to live. Uh, maybe you struggle with laziness or being indulgent. 
uh, you let c comfort control your life, you, you always take the easy route. Um, and I can truthfully say that I struggle deeply with all three of those often. Um, but the list could go, go on and on uh, if you extend the circle of who we're talking about. For you, maybe it's a struggle with pornography. Maybe it's a struggle with substance abuse. It could be a struggle with gossip or unforgiveness or greed or lying or adultery. The list could go on and on for what the is voice is compared to what the should be voice is. But this isn't the end of the passage. Um, Paul doesn't, that would be a really depressing way to end off the book of Romans. That's not the end. Um, it goes, Paul goes on to write this. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's good. Paul finds the light at the end of the tunnel for him is Jesus Christ. But the question I think still remains when we read this, why do I still sin? Why do I still give in to temptation? And how is Jesus the answer when I'm currently struggling? When I'm soaking in shame after I caved into my flesh again, where is Jesus then? And when I'm the victim of someone else's sinfulness and now I'm in pain, I'm hurting, where is Jesus in that? Um, as I was reading Romans, I found that there are three ways that Paul would answer that question. And one of them in particular, I want to kind of marinate in with you today. But we'll go through all three here. Uh, now, before we get into the book of Romans, I think it's important to say, just up top, that Romans is a book that has simultaneously fueled and frustrated anybody trying to understand Jesus for as long as Christians have been around. Paul is a really smart cookie. But not only that, he's a very unique thinker. And to us, he's a foreign thinker. So the arguments that he lays out are sometimes incredibly difficult to track with. Uh, reading Paul can be like doing a thousand piece puzzle in the dark. Uh, it's really rewarding if you can pull it off but it can give you quite the headache while you're, while you're working on it. And it's quite likely that you're mashing some pieces in where they don't belong and, getting, and missing some pieces entirely, even when you think you've got it. Uh, the number of times that I've approached the book of Romans thinking I know what it says, only to be gobsmacked at how little I know about what it says. Oh, man. But I think that what we're going to be talking about today the three aspects or dimensions of how Jesus brings salvation to us, how Jesus is the answer to our sin and death, is fairly clear from the text. It's pretty easy to see. And it might shed some light on us when we're in those moments of despair as we live in that body of, of, of death, as he says. So without further ado, here are the three enemies that Jesus must save us from. Sin, he must save us from sin, he must save us from death, and he must save us from our own flesh. So we're going to walk through each of these, um, and we're going to see where, what, what, the Roman, what the book of Romans has to say about each of them. Um, but let's start with sin. The first three chapters of Romans make it very, very clear just how big the problem of sin is. The first few chapters are just encapsulating everybody in humanity into the umbrella of sin. We are all sinners. We can't escape it. Um, Romans chapter 3, verse 9 says this, We have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. 
Sin has become a master over humanity. And something had to be done in order to cleanse us from the stain. We might categorize the problem of sin as the problem of our broken pasts. It's all of the decisions that we've made, the poor decisions that we made, that have stained us. And until this point, the law was seen by the Jews as the, as the, the solution to God's people of how, the remedy for that problem of sin. The law is what will save us. But Paul explains that really, it's only a diagnostic tool. He says this in Romans chapter th uh, 3, verse 20. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. That is, that's very all-encompassing. No one can ever be made right by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Basically, the law can diagnose your disease, but it can't heal you. So in Romans chapter 4, Paul answers the question of what can save us then? If, if uh, the law isn't our salvation, then what is? And in Romans 4, he diverts our attention from the law, through the story of Abraham, to faith, which can save us. This is in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, we see this. Um, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Now, for all of those who grow up in church, um, or you've, you've been in, around the church for a while, this dimension of Jesus' salvation is very clear to us, and it's very familiar to us. We know it like the back of our hand. Somebody asks you, he wakes you up at two in the morning, shakes you awake, and asks you, how did Jesus save you? You'd be able to say, he died for my sins on the cross. It's been drilled into you. But the next dimension, the, the, the salvation from death, is, I would say, less familiar, familiar to us. We don't pull it up as quickly. It's a little harder to, to conceive of in some cases. So let's go there. This is in Romans chapter 4, when Paul is talking about Abraham's faith being credited to him as righteousness. This is what he writes. He says, And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. So you think about Abraham, the story of Abraham. There are so many moments that Paul could have chosen from to illustrate Abraham's faithfulness to God. So why did he choose this specific moment? I think it's because there's a parallel to our faith in Jesus' resurrection. Out of what was dead, Sarah's womb, God brought life. Out of Sarah's dead womb, God brought Isaac. Also, out of the dead belly of the earth, God brought his own son to life, right? So there's life from death. There's a parallel there. And, and Isaac almost becomes a shadow for us of Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus, through his resurrection, conquers death for us. And it, you, it, this is maybe a good way of thinking about it. It's like he's a hero, a knight that's been sent out to fight a dragon, which is death. But rather than destroying the dragon from the outside, which would clearly lose him all the people that were trapped in the belly of the dragon, he let the dragon swallow him, and then he cut a hole out of the dragon so that not only he would escape, 
but that everybody who was trapped in that dragon, death, would escape with him. We could say that Jesus' resurrection was our salvation from our broken futures. This is our destiny. This was our end. The, the end of sin will always be death for us. And this salvation from death is pointed to again in Romans chapter 6 when Paul writes this. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him, right? There's the hole in the dragon. So Christ has conquered death, but this verse doesn't only imply the, the, the second form, uh, uh, the second enemy that Jesus has to defeat. It also hints at the third dimension of Jesus' salvation. So now let's go there. We've talked about how Christ has saved us from our sins through the crucifixion and from our death through the resurrection. But these two, these two forms of salvation don't give us an answer of hope to, the, to uh, our moments of struggle in the here and now. These two are, they're almost a hope that's outside of us. These two are historical moments of salvation. We can look back 1,989 years ago to a certain hillside, to the place of the skull where the, where the cross was driven into the ground, to a, into a certain tomb in which the, the stone was rolled away. And we can point to those two, the, the cross and the empty tomb, and we can say that is our salvation right there in those places and at that time. That's our salvation. These points of salvation are, to borrow a word from Pastor Paul, they're punctiliar. They, they happen at a point in time and space. Their fullness is found in a moment. But Paul, starting in chapter 5 and moving into chapter 6, starts speaking in a non-punctiliar way about Jesus. He starts to speak about Jesus almost as if he's a cosmic reality or a spiritual uh, or eternal place, a, a way of being human. In chapter 5, we see Jesus and Adam, and they're compared with each other and contrasted, almost like they are currents or figureheads of human existence. Adam swept the world into sin when he decided to disobey God in the garden. Adam swept the world into sin, and everyone was destined to die after what Adam did. His descendants just multiplied in their sins. All of humanity was moving away from communion with God, away from God, away from life and peace, and into death and darkness. In Paul's words, uh, this is Romans 5.14, Still everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God, as Adam did. It became a curse to all human nature. Adam is a way of being human, and that way is, that it's a way that leads to death. Um, Adam's current was dragging us all to hell. But after Christ had endured life in Adam's current, because he was born into that same current, he had to endure the same temptations. He had to endure all of the suffering and the pain that came with that. He walked in Adam's current. For 30 years, he walked in Adam's current. And he preached against it. And he walked perfectly against the grain. And he even healed people in the current. But at the end of the day, 
he allowed that current to, to over, overwhelm him, to overtake him. And in his death and resurrection, there's a new current that's formed, a new humanity, a new way of being creatures before God. And this new form of humanity was moving away from death and darkness. It's moving toward goodness and peace and light, towards communion with God again. But then what happened to Adam's old current? What happened to the, to the flesh, to the sinful Adam? What happened to, to our sin and our death? What happened to that old way of being human? Well, we find out in Romans chapter 6, verse 5. And Paul says this. Since we've been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ. Our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Wow. The old humanity, our flesh, has been crucified. Our sinful selves have died in Jesus. Now, does this all happen in a moment of time? It seems that it doesn't. It seems to me that whereas the crucifixion and the resurrection are moments in time, and they're completely enveloped, they're their own thing, this third element of salvation, this union with Jesus, is a different animal entirely. It, it takes place within our lives. It takes place in each believer's life. The movements of Christ's dying and rising are movements that we find in ourselves, in our day-to-day -day lives. Millions of people at different points in history find themselves acting out somehow the dying and rising of Jesus in their separate lives, in their distinct lives. Christ dies to sin once and for all. And as a result, for all of history, we begin to die to sin. As Christ raises in life to God once and for all, we do too, but slowly and progressively. It's almost like the brush strokes of salvation are thick and dense and harsh at two points in history, at the empty tomb and at the cross. And then they get smeared across the lives of the faithful in the, in the coming millennia. We might consider this Christ's salvation of the present tense, of the right now. So sin is, is our salvation, sal salvation from sin is the salvation of our pasts. Salvation from death is the salvation from our futures. But the salvation that happens in union with him as we believe and begin to live into his reality is one that happens here and now. We are being saved. We are in the process of dying and rising, becoming conformed to Christ, and the emphasis is on the ING. And that's my big idea for today. Jesus saved you, and Jesus is still saving you. In Romans 8, uh, Paul writes this, and I, I like this. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, in other words, if you crucify that flesh, you will live. 
for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit, of course, is the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of Christ, the inner life of God, the breath of God. And His Holy Spirit, He has come to live in us so that the life of Christ will be lived in and through us. What other life would there be to live for the Holy Spirit in us? What other life would the Holy Spirit live in us other than the life of Christ? He lives the life of Jesus in our bodies. It's almost like a second incarnation as we put to death the deeds of the flesh and are remade in the image of Christ. Through the Spirit of Christ, we come to die to sin, to live to God. We disobey our flesh, we obey our spirit. And that verb that's used to put to death could also be translated in the progressive tense. This is just the way the Greek works. So more like, if through the power of the Spirit you're putting, you are putting to death, if you're putting to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. The Spirit's work in our lives is not punctiliar. It's a process of formation. It is a becoming, a slow cooking, not a snap of the fingers. We are, but we're being saved nonetheless through the fruit that he's bearing in us. So why does this matter? And, and I, I think the reason this matters is because we oftentimes find our refuge and our strength in the complete and finished moments. We look to the two dense lines, the dense paint strokes of Jesus's death and resurrection, and we say, that's where I was saved. And we talk about it past tense, but there is still a saving going on. The process is in motion, it's alive. Christ is alive in us, right? Um, I think perhaps the reason that we hear less about this version of salvation, this, this aspect of salvation, is it doesn't seem concrete to us. It seems subjective, and every time we stumble, we're reminded that the work isn't yet finished in us. The cross and the empty tomb are finished. They're complete. We are not finished. We are not complete. When I'm dealing with my lust or my pride or my anger, and I, I, I can look to the cross and I can find my peace. When a, a loved one of mine is hurting or suffering or even dying, I can look to the resurrection and find my peace. But when I look to the work that Jesus is doing in me, through the Spirit, all I see is an under-construction sign, right? It's in process. And at the very heart of it, if you're like me, it bothers us because we're impatient. We want to cross the finish line. We want to win the fight. We, we feel like a half-cooked burrito with three minutes still on the timer. We aren't what we're supposed to be yet. We're still cooking, and we're not good yet. Um, a while back, while we were doing our 10-week uh, our discipleship journey as a staff, uh, there was a reading that we did in Genesis 1. And I noticed something that I hadn't seen before. And it came to me, in the, this little epiphany came to me in the form of a question. Why did God take six days to finish creation? The question came as I was picturing what things must have looked like in the very beginning. The earth being this big glob without any form, barren, raw, darkness covering everything, sort of a dismal start to the created order. But where is the spirit? He's hovering over the waters, over the chaos, over the darkness. 
I think that the story of creation tells us a lot about the God that we worship. Why didn't God just start with what he wanted? Why didn't he just call everything into existence as it would have looked on the last day? We know he could have. He demonstrates his power in the beginning. Nothing is that wasn't created. Why didn't he do so? And instead, he bears with this unformed, unsorted, unfruitful creation, slowly, step by step, making it into what he wants it to look like. He starts with the darkness, then he moves it towards the light. He starts with the barren, and then he moves it towards the life. He starts with the chaos, and then he moves it towards the order. Our God, we know, does not stand for darkness. He does not stand for chaos, and he does not stand for emptiness. He's not a God of darkness, chaos, or emptiness. He will always light up the dark places, always order the chaos, and always fill the empty parts of us and of everything. But he also doesn't do this all at once. He does this at his own pacing, in his own way. He doesn't hurry to the finish line. He's a slow, meticulous, and patient God. He doesn't cut corners. He doesn't use steroids. He doesn't microwave. He takes his time. Now, I'll be the first to admit that there is still much darkness in me, and I see it often. Death still lingers in me. I still often give in to my urges and give in to sin. And there are times I really wish that God would just finish the job already. I wish I could get the spirit to hurry it up a little bit, pick up the pace. I wish I could just snap my fingers and become who I want to be. And maybe you're in the same boat as me. Maybe you're also tired of waking up and still having to face temptation after temptation, of still giving in to those urges that you've been dealing with for your whole life. And after all this time of following Jesus, still facing those hard-dying old habits, maybe you find yourself saying, in different words, the same sort of thing that Paul says in Romans 7, oh, what a miserable person I am, who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death. I think when we're in those moments, when we're, when we're attacked by that spirit of, of, um, of defeat, there are three things for us to run back to when we're assaulted by these idealistic thoughts, these exasperated laments. So let's, let's look at these. The first of them is that the same completeness, the same fullness, the same salvation that we see on the cross, the same power that was in the empty tomb are living in you. We will not stop short of being perfect, perfectly conformed to Christ. This roller coaster isn't going to break down mid-ride. And Paul writes this in Philippians. I think this is a good way of saying it. I am certain that God, began, that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Or as Jesus says himself in John chapter 6, those the Father has given me will come to me and I will never reject them. God stands unhindered in his goal of bringing you into conformity to his son. This is your final end. This is your purpose. 
This is your destiny. Nothing's going to separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. The same God who divided the waters, who filled the seas with the fish and filled the sky with the birds and called light itself into being, who made you, will organize what's messy in you. He will bring light into your shadowy parts. He will fill you with life. So we have to keep that in mind. The empty cross, I'm sorry, not the empty cross. The cross and the empty tomb, they are alive in you. The second thing to keep in mind is that Christ is saving a we, not just a me. It can be easy to live in that dark night of the soul when we don't have our brothers and sisters to remind us of God's faithfulness. Because you act as a witness, as a signpost to strengthen the weakness that's in your brother or your sister. Your confession, your brokenness, your slow redemption, your story, your testimony, these can all be demonstrations of God's faithfulness when they're told to those uh, who are struggling. They comfort your brother and sister in need because you aren't an island. Christ didn't save a person. He saved a people. Oftentimes, I actually think that it's the pride and selfishness in us that keeps us from being fully present in church life together, to being a family to one another. Um, we don't see how crucial we are for each other. Um, in, in youth group about a, a month or two ago, we talked about how the church is like a hospital where all of the patients are also the healthcare workers. Um, it's true. Uh, God has given you both a medicine and he's allowed you to have some sort of illness. There's a way in which you aren't yet complete. You have a spiritual gifting, but you also probably have a spiritual weakness. Your gifting isn't for you. It's for your brother and your sister, and they desperately need it from you. And vice versa, you need the medicine that they have been given by God for you. I was, uh, this is a good example, I was talking with Marty Hogstad, who's our uh, women's ministry small group coordinator, uh, the other day, and she is somebody who greatly encourages me, and I need encouragement. I, my soul, I have a very deep inner critic, and it is very hard for me to experience encouragement by myself. I need somebody to speak that into me. Otherwise, I will not experience the grace that everybody else experiences naturally. I just, it, it's not there in me. And so I need Marty. She, she is a, a person who speaks life into me. Some of you guys um, may need other things from your brothers and sisters. Some of you may need um, somebody to help direct you or lead you when things are confusing. Somebody, some of you may need uh, teaching when, it, when things get confusing. Some of you may need somebody to sit next to you when you're hurting. Somebody to mourn with you in your mourning. Somebody to walk with you in those tough parts of life. Maybe somebody, you need somebody to pray over you. Maybe you need somebody to pull you back, uh, to, to, to call you out when you're, when you're falling back into old habits, keeping you accountable, right? Um, some of you uh, maybe even need resources from your brothers and sisters. You're just, you're not, um, you're not as well off and you need the help. And it's in the church that we find the answers to all of these needs. And the unique thing is that in our need, even though we aren't full, we aren't complete, we don't have everything that we need, 
it gives us an opportunity to become unified with one another, to become that family, to rely on each other, and to rely on the Jesus that lives in each other, right? Um, I saw someone wearing a t-shirt a couple of weeks ago that says, uh, church is a team sport, and I really like that t-shirt. Church is a team sport. Okay, third and final thing to anchor us is that the Spirit of Christ, as he's working to transform us, we, we need to have patience. Patience is a, is a virtue in God's economy, in God's inner life. Um, we need to be patient with God. We need to be patient with ourselves. We need to be patient with each other. And this should not be a surprise to us, considering the God that we serve. This is the same God that told Abraham that he was going to be a father and then waited 25 years. He, he told Abraham when he was 75, so he already was pretty old, right? Older than most parents. And then he waited 25 more years to fulfill the promise. This is the same God that allowed the Israelites to stay in Egypt for 400 years in slavery before finally delivering them. This is the same God who led the Israelites around in the wilderness for 40 years when the trip would not, did not need to take that long. This is the God who warned the Israelites over and over again, sent them prophet after prophet to try to bring back the people of God to the covenant that he had made with them. And this is the God that we just celebrated last week that came in the person of Jesus and spent nine months just waiting around in a womb, just waiting as God, just waiting. It's the same God that lived 30 years before starting his earthly ministry, waiting. Our God lives and breathes patience. He's not impulsive, he's not hot-headed, and the same patient spirit that God possesses, he's given to us to work slowly and persistently and patiently in, in his people. So as we see the weakness or the brokenness in each other, in our brothers and sisters, we have no right to be impatient with them. As we pray and as we ask God for help, we're told to expect, but we're not given a deadline for when God's going to answer our prayer. Like the widow and the judge, we have to be anticipating and expecting each day, and we have to be patient. And as we see sin in ourselves, we're invited by God to see it as God sees it. Opposed to it, but not threatened by it. Um, Brother Lawrence wrote this at one point. I, I think this is great. He, this, is, this is when he would sin. This is what he would say to God. I can do nothing better without you. I can do nothing better without you. Please keep me from falling and correct the mistake I make. He allowed the love of God to wash over his weakness, the grace and patience of God to wash over his brokenness, not dwelling in his sin, but allowing it to point him back to who God was. So let's say that you're the type of person, let's try to like make an example here. Let's say you're the type of person that struggles to share the gospel with people. I know that I get nervous right before I'm about to share my faith with somebody. And let's say that you're working, um, you're at work and you're, uh, your coworker, uh, you've known them forever, but you don't know them super well. And you, you breach the question, you ever been to church? And let's go with Becky, I like Becky. Um, Becky says back to you, 
uh, no, never been, never really, never really been. Uh, gets a little bristled that you asked. You can tell, right? Maybe they grew up in, in an agnostic or atheist household where believing in God was for idiots. Or maybe, uh, maybe they got hurt in church, right? Um, but you feel that, and there's this little voice in you that goes, back out. This is, this is awkward. I don't want to be here anymore, right? And let's say you can feel the Spirit pushing you to talk to Becky. Come on, just, just share. But you, you cave, and you're like, I can't do it. You walk away. Okay, just curious. You walk away. You could walk away from that and think to yourself, um, I'm a failure. I'm, I'm never going to be good at sharing the gospel with people. I'm never going to be good at sharing my faith. So I'm just not going to try anymore. You could start beating yourself up. You could, you could isolate yourself. Uh, you could even get frustrated at God for not making it easier for you. Um, but what if instead of all those things, you remembered the, the patience that God has with you? What if you remembered Christ's grace? What if you remembered the power of the empty tomb and the cross that live in you? What if you reached out to your church and you asked for help? I mean, the church has people who are basically there to train you how to share your faith. What if you leaned on them for help? In short, what if you treated yourself as a work in progress? You didn't feel like you needed to be finished today. I think if we walk in this way, I think if we, um, if we have this hope of the fullness to come, we bear with each other lovingly and generously, and we have patience with ourselves, with each other, and with God, I think that we will come to enjoy the faith walk that we have. Even when the milestones come slowly, even when it seems hard to get back up on the horse, and even when the end is far from sight. Um, each weekend, we're invited to remember Jesus, um, his body broken, his blood spilled for us um, through taking communion with each other. Uh, and like I said at the beginning of today, today is uh, New Year's Day. We have a full year, 2023, ahead of us. So I encourage you to remember today, as you go to the table and as you take communion together, the patience and the grace that God has for you. Not just that we see on the cross and in the empty tomb, but in your own life. Where are the victories? Where are the struggles that you need to be patient with God in? And I encourage you to ask God in the new year here to give you a deep surrender and a resounding patience as you approach 2023. But let's pray together. Father, it can be so challenging to live in the tension of the here and the not yet. We know the kingdom is here in our midst, and yet it is not fully realized. We can feel the, the disconnect between what sometimes even what we preach and what we feel, what we preach and what we experience. God, would you teach us to dwell patiently in that? Would you teach us the patience of Jesus wandering in the wilderness for 40 days? Um, the patience of Moses walking around with the Israelites for 40 years. The patience of David as he lied in wait um, 
fearful for his life um, as his enemies came in around him. Would you teach us that patience with ourselves, with the enemies that we face in ourselves, with each other and with you? In your holy precious name we pray, amen.